We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, please. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so... Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience 
many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Brother Drew, for reading that. I invite you to turn to First Timothy chapter 1 this evening. We'll spend our time this evening looking at verses 18 to 20, which close out the first chapter, although I even hesitate saying it that way, though it's true, because I don't want that to be like closing your mind to, okay, we're done with chapter 1, Paul's going to go on to something completely different in chapter 2. In some sense, that is true. In other sense, we have to remember that this is a letter written uh, to Timothy, and it all has kind of a unified uh, meaning and purpose And so even though we're moving to a next chapter next time, Lord willing, um, don't think of it as a completely different topic or discussion. It's a continuation of what Paul is trying to teach and exhort Timothy concerning the false teaching that we see happening in the church in Ephesus. So far, we've looked at um, some of the instructions that Paul has given to Timothy in verse 3 and all the way to verse 17. We said there were three kind of subsections Verses 3 is kind of a description of of the issue that's going on in the church in Ephesus. Uh, There is false teaching, false doctrine being spread, the promotion of of fables and endless genealogies, which is creating disputes within the church uh, rather than accomplishing what the church's purpose was, which is the the stewardship of God's ministry, the the outworking of God's redemptive plan. And uh, instead, these false teachers are promoting uh, division and divisiveness in the church. Paul then goes on to describe in verses 8 to 11 uh, that there is a proper manner to use the law, a proper use of it, uh, but unfortunately the false teachers were not using it in this way, and so Paul corrects them on the proper use of this. Then verses 12 to 17, we saw last time that Paul uses his personal testimony to explain the true nature of salvation, which is by grace through faith, and is not a work of ourselves, but it is by the grace and mercy of God that we are saved. And some application that we brought out from last time that is that this, is, is this very fact, that if God can save the least of sinners or the worst of sinners, like Paul saw himself, God can save and equip and use anyone in his ministry and work. Now we get to verses 18 to 20 this evening. And uh, the title that I have given to this section is The Christian, Min- the Christian Minister's Duty Demands Faith and Integrity. The Christian Minister's Duty Demands Faith and Integrity. Let me read for you this evening, 18 to 20, and then we'll spend some time looking at it in our time this evening. Beginning in verse 18, Paul says this to Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, have, I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In our passage this evening, we see Paul reiterating this charge that he's given to Timothy And he is instructing Timothy and reminding Timothy that his duty as a minister of the gospel, 
demands faith and personal integrity. Timothy is facing a very difficult situation in the church in Ephesus. Paul has moved on in the ministry for whatever reason. He had to go on to Macedonia, leaving Timothy to kind of clean up a mess that's in the church in Ephesus. And uh, this was very likely uh, overwhelming to Timothy and somewhat uh, of a, a reason to be anxious. Yet Paul here is encouraging Timothy to remember uh, his duties and to do them well, to fight the good, good faith, the good fight, as it were. We see here the charge or command that Paul refers to in verse 18 refers to a previously stated charge in verse 3, which uh, we looked at before, but let me read that to you again back in verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul writes this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So when Paul writes in verse 18, this charge, he's referring all the way back to verse 3 and, and so forth regarding this charge to, to instruct the false teachers to correct their thinking and their teaching on God's word. Paul's purpose for reiterating this charge is not because Timothy is likely to have forgotten this purpose. You know, it was just stated a few verses before. Uh, it's not like he's worried that Timothy's been absent-minded as, he, as, he, as he's reading this letter. Rather, um, Paul's purpose in reiterating what has already been said is to remind Timothy to fulfill his ministry duties well while avoiding shipwrecking his faith like that of some of these false teachers, or all of them, that is. The word commit in verse 18 means to entrust for safekeeping or transmission to others. Paul uses this word again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when he commands Timothy to commit all that he's told him to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. The same idea of entrusting or transmitting a transmission of instruction and teaching to some other person uh, is used in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's the same word being used here in verse 18 regarding the instructions that Paul has given to Timothy to, uh, to tell others, in this case, the false teachers, regarding uh, what they should be believing and teaching in contrast to what they were. Timothy was entrusted with the instructions to confront false teaching in the church. This is not the only duty that a pastor has in the church. Pastors and church leaders have many responsibilities. For instance, he is called to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 tells us this. He is to keep watch of the souls of those flocks, Hebrews 13, 17. He is to preach the word, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, using that very word to reprove and rebuke and exhort and instruct. We see in 2 Timothy 4, 2. And in this very situation, Timothy needed to reprove those leading others astray and correct them with sound doctrine, correct the false teachers who were leading others astray. 
these same duties apply to the Christian minister today. He is not only to shepherd the flock of God, keeping watch over their souls, preaching the word, reproving and rebuking and exhorting and instructing. He is also to confront false teaching when it rears its ugly head. There, of course, are many enjoyable aspects to ministering, and I said this before, but some that are more difficult to do. However, in order to be faithful stewards of the gospel, which has been entrusted to Christian ministers, to pastors, to the church leaders, it also requires us to guard the church from those who want to pervert the gospel and lead the church astray by promoting matters that create divisiveness, that steer away from the gospel of Christ, from sound teaching, and promote something other than the teaching of the apostles. That is not to say, then, that as ministers of the gospel, there's some kind of backwards joy that we get in confronting false teaching. However, at the same time, there is a sense of satisfaction, even in the difficult task, that at the end of the day, we have done what God has asked us to do. Like Timothy, we have a charge from God to protect the church from false teaching and error. Now, Paul says in verse 18 that this charge or instruction, this command which Paul has entrusted to Timothy, is according to the prophecies previously made concerning Timothy, that by him or by you, you may wage the good warfare. Timothy's call to ministry included a kind of unique prophetic aspect to it. Uh, if you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, we see a little bit uh, we, there's a little bit of light shed on this. Chapter four, verse or ch- chapter four, verse uh, fourteen, beginning actually back in verse twelve. Let me read there. It says, "Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you." which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Timothy's call to ministry included a prophetic utterance or prophetic call, a unique aspect that's not necessary or seen today in confirming a man's call to ministry. There are qualifications for a minister today. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and also in Titus chapter 1 as well. But there is not this kind of unique prophetic utterance today. We do have, as Pastor even said this morning, a process of recognizing, confirming someone in their ministry. And we see that fleshed out usually through some kind of ordination and confirming their doctrine and their conduct and character, seeing whether or not they are actually apt to teach and qualified for the ministry. But we don't see quite this today, this unique prophetic Uh, utterance or confirmation like we see in Timothy's case. It was a bit of a unique situation that we see here in uh, Timothy's case. These prophecies probably came sometime earlier than uh, when Timothy first joined Paul's work and began to travel with him. We're not told the full content of these prophecies or who, uh, who were the 
prophetic ones, the, the prophesiers. But it is likely, but it likely included the recognition of the spiritual gifts Timothy had. We see this in chapter 4, verse 14, and we know that it included the eldership and them laying hands on Timothy, confirming uh, Timothy's gifts and spiritual gifting and uh, purpose in the ministry. It's possible, too, that these prophecies uh, are somewhat similar to the experience that we see detailed in Acts chapter 13 uh, in regards to uh, Paul and Barnabas's uh, commissioning to, uh, to the ministry. Let me just read that for you to get an idea of what is going on there. Acts chapter 13. Looking at uh, verses 1 to 3, it says here, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And it's possible here that the Holy Spirit spoke through one of these prophets or teachers that was there and uh, calling out uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work. And so uh, we might consider the fact that it's a similar experience happened to Timothy, and then in the same kind of way, they laid hands on them and commissioned Timothy and sent him along uh, with Paul to do the work of, of the ministry. Now, Paul's charge to Timothy was in keeping, we see, with the prophecies given concerning Timothy. In other words, the charge to instruct the false teachers was a part of Timothy's God-ordained responsibilities as a minister of the gospel. By ministering in a manner consistent with these former prophecies, which included using Timothy's spiritual gifts and fulfilling his duty as a minister... Timothy may engage in a war that is good or, or noble, as it's stated here in verse uh, 18. Reading again in verse 18, Paul writes, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, that is by, by those prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Now, Paul often uh, uses these kind of military metaphors. Uh, we see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, also in Ephesians 6, 11 to 18. Paul makes clear that the fight that Timothy is to be engaged in is a noble or good task, and it accords with the gospel. Of course, this is not a, a, literal, a literal kind of war that Timothy is engaging in, but a fight in terms of warfare against the false teaching being promoted by opponents of sound doctrine. As Paul put it, puts it, uh, this is not a battle against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read that to you there. Ephesians chapter 6. I know you're familiar with this passage. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 10 through uh, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, 
or able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, it's not a, a battle against uh, material things of this world, against uh, flesh and blood, against people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We might ask ourselves, well, how are these, uh, how are these entities, manifest? how do they manifest themselves? Well, they manifest themselves through Satan's minions, if I can put it that way, through his false teachers, through false doctrine, those who First uh, uh, John uh, calls antichrist, those who are against Christ and his work and uh, sound doctrine. The purpose then for Paul reminding Timothy of these prophecies concerning his, his, his very self was to motivate Timothy to fight this good and noble fight against Satan and his powers and his working in the world by fulfilling his God-ordained ministry duties. As I said a moment ago, um, there are many joyful aspects to the ministry, but there are the difficult ones as well. There is the, the fighting, as it were, against Satan's work against the things that he wants to accomplish, which is to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, to divide the church so that it's not united in purpose and aim. And Paul is commanding Timothy here. He's charging, he's entrusting to Timothy this charge to wage this good warfare, this good fight for the noble cause of the gospel. Now, to these objective and external calls from God and from Paul to Timothy to fight this good warfare, Paul adds the personal activity of holding or keeping faith and a good conscience. Paul says this, by, uh, by them, that is these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare having faith or keeping faith and a good conscience. A good conscience. The duty of the Christian minister demands faith and a good conscience. If he is going to be, that is Timothy, be effective in his ministry and his duty of correcting the false teaching in the church in Ephesus, if he's going to be qualified to fight in this good and noble fight, he must keep or maintain his faith in a good conscience. Here it seems that the faith in reference to here is a personal kind of faith or belief. The exercising of faith in God and his word, believing into God, believing him and his word, rather than um, sometimes the word faith being used to refer to the body of truth that we believe into. I think here, given the context, rather it's referring to a personal kind of faith, of a believing into an exercising of faith in God and his word. Paul, or excuse me, Timothy is to maintain that personal faith, that personal belief in the word of God and, and what it stands for. Not only is he to keep this personal faith, but he is also called to maintain a good conscience. 
Timothy must keep personal watch over himself if he is going to fight this good fight. We see a similar kind of command and idea uh, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this in verse 21. I think I have the right passage here. Let me just read it and see. Uh, verse Beginning in verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Um, in one sense here we see uh, that in order, uh, on the human side, salvation requires and comes only through faith, those who believe, who exercise this personal faith. But in addition to that, we know that there is a responsibility Timothy has to keep watch over himself. And Paul reiterates this idea in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. First, uh, verse 16 of chapter 4. Paul says this to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The Christian minister, and all believers for that fact, have the responsibility to keep watch over themselves. They are to watch themselves in the sense of making sure that what they are believing in is sound, but also that their, their life and their conduct and their character reflects that which, we, which they claim to believe into. In order for Timothy to fulfill these responsibilities that he has with faithfulness and effectiveness, Paul must keep personal watch over himself. If he does not, if he fails to do this, he will be like those who have rejected the faith and a good conscience and have shipwrecked their faith. And Paul uses the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander here in verse 20 to set an example to Timothy and to all who will read this letter that there is a danger that comes with rejecting the faith and a good conscience. Look at, with me at verses uh, 19 and 20. Paul says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, that is, having rejected faith and a good conscience, have, shup, uh, have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith, or concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The shipwrecked faith of the false teachers was a result of a rejection of personal faith and a good conscience. These two things, these two qualities, these two Christian values are essential to the Christian faith. Every believer is required to have faith and to have a good conscience. 
Without faith, we know, Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please God. Likewise, a good conscience is a conscience that is sensitive to the Spirit of God and able to identify good from evil. The false teachers rejected these two things. They turned away from them. They turned to false teaching, to endless genealogies and fables and myths and speculative thinking, rather than maintaining a faith in the word of God and in God himself and keeping a good conscience, being able to discern right from wrong, false teaching from true uh, faith and sound teaching. We know this is the case. First Timothy chapter 4, going back there again to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, tells us this. It says this in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in, the latter, in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Those who know the truth have not had their conscience seared. They are able to discern what is right and what is wrong, In contrast, these ones here, these false teachers who are giving heed to deceiving spirits, Satan's workers, are now speaking lies, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, no longer able to discern what is right and wrong, no longer listening to the Spirit of God, Rather, they have listened to the spirits of Satan, to his agents. They have thus, because of this, suffered shipwreck, Paul says. The false teachers, having rejected these two fundamental qualities, have made shipwreck their faith. Now, um, there are some who translate this actively, like they shipwrecked their faith, meaning they destroyed their personal faith. Others translate it as shipwrecked the faith in kind of a more objective, external sense, uh, more in relationship to, again, the body of truth. They've shipwrecked it. Others give it, uh, it the sense of suffering or suffer disaster and great loss as it relates to the person. However, because Paul is speaking in personal terms regarding Timothy's personal faith and good conscience, uh, the context indicates that these two false teachers are examples of individuals, individuals who have not maintained their faith in a good conscience. Their faith has shipwrecked, it is smashed into pieces. It has become non-existent, as it were. And they are going down with the ship. Concerning the things of the faith, they are completely lost. They're in shambles, in pieces, like a ship 
bashed against the rocks. They were not going to be survivors of the shipwreck like Paul was three times, in a metaphorical kind of sense. They were going down, having been deceived and deceiving others. In other words, this is not a picture of believers gone slightly wrong. We see instances of that, and even in Galatians, Paul says, you know, restore those people with gentleness who have kind of gone astray. This is not the same kind of case. These are ones who have have shipwrecked their faith. They've gone completely astray. They are no longer for the things of God, but they are behind, whether consciously or not, the things of Satan and what he desires. Now, Paul names two specific examples of these kinds of people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Notice the words of whom are. Paul names these two false teachers. They, there were many then. We know that. For, for, for one, we see that Paul has already dealt with these two, Hymenaeus and Alexander. But he's left Timothy in Ephesus to take care of the rest of them. So these are not the only two. These are only two of many, perhaps the kind of ringleaders of, of this uh, sect of people who are going astray. Hymenaeus, probably the same person we see mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Let me read that to you this evening here. Verse seven, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says this in verse 17, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So here we already see, we see uh, Hymenaeus, we know of Alexander, we also see here Philetus, and of course there are many others that are um, of the same mind as them. The issue, the problem that we see with Hymenaeus is that he taught that the resurrection had already passed. He was a false teacher whose teaching was like cancer. It was spreading quickly among the body, causing some to go astray in the faith. He himself had departed from the truth, made shipwreck of his faith, and even more concerningly, he was making shipwreck of others' faith. He certainly was not one of God's own. Alexander, possibly the same as the coppersmith that we see mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.14. However, this probably was a very common name, so we can't be sure, but it's, it's very possible that this is the case, the same individual being mentioned. We know of other false teachers mentioned in Scripture. Acts chapter 19, verse 33 mentions uh, an unbeliever named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. Diotrephes in uh, 3 John 9. Janus and Jambres were also opponents to Moses. We see in the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3.8 mentions them. And Philetus, of course, we already mentioned him in chapter 2, verse 17 of 2 Timothy. Now, I believe that we can take Paul's example of specifically calling out false teachers to be applicable to our practice today. 
In other words, it wasn't just because Paul was a specially commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ that he had a kind of uh, a special duty or privilege of being able to call out people's names in specificity. Rather, it was his status as a teacher of the faith, a protector of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who God had entrusted the very words of God to, to protect and to proclaim. It's on this basis that Paul calls out these ones who are not teaching that, who are not protecting and safeguarding the word of God. We should be clear about what we are talking about uh, when we perhaps call out these false teachers. We need to understand what they're teaching and understand their error. And we need to call them out for this very reason, to protect those in the flock who perhaps are weaker in the faith, perhaps know less about it, or perhaps it's simply that the words of these people are very cunning. And we can easily become deceived by what sounds right, but is actually not taught in the word of God. Now we see that Paul handles these two in a very specific manner, and there's much we can learn here from that. And so we'll spend a few moments looking at that. We see in verse 20 that Paul delivers these two individuals, these two false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Just stop for a moment and say this is no light stuff. This is nothing to do carelessly. Paul is certainly not, has, didn't do it care, carelessly. He it was a well-thought-out process, and it was necessary for the protection of the gospel and of the church. Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan. Apostolic discipline, like church discipline today, includes removing a person from the church's fellowship and delivering them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that they may be saved. Where do we get that from? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've, we see a, a very good example of what this looks like in the church in uh, Corinth. There is immorality happening in the church in Corinth, and the church has not dealt with it in a proper manner, rather than uh, snuffing it out and uh, calling this person out for their sin. Um, Paul says, rather, they're glorifying, in a sense, in it, rather than dealing with the problem. And so Paul deals with it himself. We see this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and, they are, and you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, that is, removed, put out from the church. Not simply because he has sinned, but because he hasn't repented of that sin. Verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We might look at that and think, wow, (laughs) what a drastic measure being taken. But it is essential, one, because the church must learn how to properly deal with sin and keep themselves from sin, but it is also helpful to this individual. It is for their own good that Paul has them removed. Why? So that they may be saved. Better now be delivered to Satan than be delivered to the place where Satan will reside one day. Disciplinary action is more than just excommunication, though, meaning it's, that's not the end goal. It's just to remove the person, take care of the problem in, in, a, in that sense, there is a greater purpose here. The purpose given in 1 Timothy chapter 1.20 is that they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, uh, Paul's purpose here of handing them over to Satan is that they learn some very important spiritual lessons through divine consequences. The purpose of handing them over to Satan was not merely punitive, but chiefly corrective or formative in person, in uh, in purpose. By excluding them from the fellowship of God's people, Paul hoped that Satan's affliction, Satan's dealing with this person, would teach them not to insult the Lord by their words and their deeds, their character and their conduct. They're teaching. There is no mercy and grace in Satan's realm. Satan is seeking to devour, to destroy. And sometimes it takes these divine consequences to wake up someone to the fact that what they are doing and what they are saying is not for God, but against God. And if it's not for God, it's for the devil. Church discipline is ultimately meant for and hopes for restoration of the person who has sinned so that they would no longer be blasphemers in this sense, in this example. It is not, as we said, merely punitive in nature. However, if the person refuses to repent thus not able to be restored, it has accomplished one thing. At least the church and its people is kept pure, and they may learn something through that lesson. Now, the concluding clause that they may learn not to blaspheme shows clearly that the purpose of church disciplinary action was, again, as we said, remedial and not simply punitive. However stringent the process, the motive was mercy. 
And whenever ecclesiastical discipline has departed from this purpose of restoration, its harshness has proved to be a barrier to progress. As ministers of the gospel, as leaders, pastors, in Timothy's case, as a apostolic representative of Timothy, we must go about this with great care and biblical motive. It is not to exercise authority to lord over the people of God. Rather, it is to keep watch over their souls. And if that means handing them over to Satan to experience consequences in order to save their soul, then we must do it. It is actually an act of mercy to do so. So what is the lesson for us in all of this? It doesn't seem that Paul is, at at least at this time, considering them um, total unbelievers. It is likely the case. But we see even in Paul's word a hope of restoration, a hope of them learning of their error and being restored to the church perhaps even one day being able to teach the people of God again. This time, the true doctrine, pure doctrine. If Paul instructs Timothy to watch over himself, have faith, maintain faith, maintain a good conscience, if Timothy must do this, then we must do it as well. If we want to wage the good warfare, if we want to be involved in God's work, in his ministry, if we want to fulfill the things that God has for us, if we want to avoid suffering shipwreck, then it is essential that we maintain personal faith in a good conscience. How do we do that? We do that by keeping near to the word of God. We listen to the word of God. We obey the word of God. And we obey the commands that God has given us. In Timothy's case, God had ordained that he be in the ministry to do the work of the ministry, to fulfill that that responsibility. You may not be called to ministry in a vocational sense, But you are called to a ministry. You are called to serve. And if you're going to do that well, then you must maintain faith and a good conscience. If you want to avoid suffering shipwreck, then you must stick close to the word of God and allow it to mold and to shape you Looking back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells us, as we've already read in weeks past, the purpose of Timothy's charge to instruct them, to restore them, to rebuke them, so that they return to sound teaching. Paul says in verse 5, Now the purpose of the command is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
if we want to cultivate in ourselves love, a genuine Christian love, then we must maintain a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander, just two examples of many, were not ones who kept close to that command, to the instruction of Paul, and therefore in their conduct and in their words did not display the kind of love that the word of God uh, establishes and displays in a believer. As we close, I encourage you and exhort you with this very instruction. Maintain your faith. Maintain a good conscience. The Spirit of God is working in you to do that. This isn't a fight by yourself. We are on the Lord's side, and he is on ours. So may you do that, may I do that, by God's help, so that we can avoid the same kind of fate as some who reject it. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, as we close, may you work in us. Lord, may you help us maintain that faith, maintain that good conscience by your help and strength. If it was important enough for Timothy to do, it's certainly important for us to do. Lord, if we want to avoid having to learn through divine consequences, if we can avoid that altogether, not have to go down that path, Lord, help us to do that. By your strength we pray in Christ's name, amen.